There we go. Uh, we're uh, continuing our uh, look this morning at uh, uh, Numbers chapter 30, uh, Numbers uh, verses 1 through 16. A text is printed in the bulletin uh, and up on the screens behind me. Um, this is God's word, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. And let me just say, anytime you read the Bible and you come to that sentence, this is what the Lord commands, you should pay attention. Pretty direct statement, pretty clear, not a lot of equivocation there. Uh, And so because of that, and because we live our lives fed on equivocation, uh, we probably at this moment should be breaking out into a sweat uh, to hear what it is uh, that God commands because it's like, whoops, what's about to come out of his mouth? This is what the Lord commands. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. If she marries a husband (coughs) while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand, and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if, on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes void her vow that was on her, and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by a pledge with an oath, and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband's made them void, and the Lord will forgive her. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself her husband may establish, or her husband may make void. But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. He has established them because he has he said nothing to her on the day that he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after she, he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. These are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she is in her youth within her father's house. So this is one of those texts that you come to in the Bible. And I think, why do I preach through books of the Bible? And why didn't, if I'm going to preach through books of the Bible, didn't I arrange my time to be away differently? Because it's uncomfortable. And, and let me be clear about why it's uncomfortable. 
Some of you are on a sinking ship that you made a vow to stay on. And you think, Steve knows about my situation, and so he's going to put me on display by talking about this this morning. Right? Um, And for some of us, we hear these words about vows, and we think about all the vows and promises that we've made, um, and it's hard. It's hard. Really hard. Almost impossible. Right? And so when we come to a text like this, you know, it is, it's kind of a smack in our face. Uh, because the way we tend to, the way I do anyway, tend to sleepwalk through my life is thinking that, uh, you know, that, that what God is to me is tolerant. And God's more than tolerant. Uh, he's gracious and he's merciful. And yet the Lord commands that whatever I have vowed, I keep it. Now, why is that? Um, and, and why is this such a key part of the text uh, that we've read and that we're looking at today? Well, uh, Scott, go ahead and put my, my notes up there and we'll jump in here this morning. So in these final chapters of number, God is tidying up and giving instructions about some specific issues that the people will face as they move into and settle into the promised land. Now, one of the things that if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know anything about the people of God, that one of the things that was true of their life together was they took vows and oaths and promises very, very seriously. It's a big thing in their life, right? And and it should have been. Because their father Abraham was who he was because God came to him and said, I promise to you in blood that I will fulfill all of these blessings. That the very character of their God, that the very reality of who it was that they were tied to was founded upon the fact that this God told the truth. And if he said something, he would do it. If he said something, he would do it. Now, one of the things, and and so this is a huge thing, and one of the things that you hear about that and you think, well, wait a minute, God doesn't make vows. He promises, but he doesn't vow. He doesn't take an oath. Well, read at the the beginning of the bulletin my letter. Hebrews 6, this is from the Bible. Uh, I didn't write this. Whoever wrote Hebrews did. This is what they say. People swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So the fact that we have salvation at all is based upon the fact that God has said we have salvation. Now, 
let me be clear. Let me let me break this down for you even more. We hope our hope, our ultimate hope, our blessed hope <coughs> is founded in the resurrection. Right. We believe as as we uh, have testified to today already that when when people who are in Christ die, our hope is that God will raise them from the dead. How do you know that? Why do you believe it? Well, Jesus rose from the dead. So? Just because Jesus rose from the dead, what good does that do you? That's a thing that happened in the past. We believe that we will be raised from the dead because God has said you will be raised from the dead. And he cannot lie. So our hope today is founded upon the vow, the oath, the promise of God. Right? Now we can look back and say, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. But how do I believe I'm going to rise from the dead? Because God said I would. Okay? And that's that's the foundation of our faith. That's the foundation of what our hope is. It is rooted in the very character of this God who when he says something, when he makes a promise, when he makes an oath, when he takes a vow, you can rest assured he's going to do it. That's our hope. That's what we base. That's what we base our faith and, and our life on. And so as we unpack this today, one of the things you have to see about this is that this was one of the key things about the people of God. Now, now, to, to note about this, you know, as we as we look at this text, we have these first two verses that are very uncompromising. And we're going to look at those, but we're going to look at the middle part first and the end part first. And then we're going to go back to verses one and two. We're going to look at verses three through 16. And then we're going to look at verses one and two, <coughs> because look, at, I mean, what person in his right mind would write verses 316 through 3 through 16 knowing that a 2018 audience is going to read this. Because this is just anti-woman. Right? Isn't that what it seems like? Doesn't it seem like that? Come on! Doesn't it seem like that? Yes, it does. That's what I thought when I read it this week. That's why I thought, you know, Steve, you're sick. Get sicker. <laughs> except, except, you know, short of having a Scottish accent, having a screeching, sick-sounding voice makes people pay attention to you better. Because they're like, uh-oh, what's going to happen next? So I don't have my Scottish accent going today, but I sound like I might die. So you're going to listen. Listen, here's... Here's the thing as we, as we look at this. Let me, let me put these, these verses in context this, as we look at verses 3 through 16. The most precious vow made by a human being in the Old Testament is made by a woman. An infertile woman who is mocked, who is distraught. And she goes to the tabernacle of the Lord and she says, Oh God, you know the desire of my heart. Give me a son. And if you give me a son, I will give him back. 
and I will bring offerings, expensive offerings, to celebrate your love and your grace and your mercy. That woman is Hannah, and that child is Samuel. And you see, the Lord heard her and responded to her, and she kept her vow. It's a profound picture for us to to see about how grace and mercy works through this. And one of the things that you may never have thought about this at all, given, given what we've read in this text today, is that her husband allows her to fulfill the vow. Who owned all the sheep and the cattle that she sacrificed? He did. He wanted her to do this. He wanted her to keep this. He did not nullify it, right? So as we look at this text, what, what are a couple of things that we can, we can uh, uh, draw out about this? Well, the first thing is this is not about women being flightier or women being more emotional or making rash vows. Because the truth is men are more emotional than women. I can prove it. First of all, when your son turns 16 and 9 months, And he gets his driver's license. Your insurance agent will confirm to you how emotional and irresponsible boys are. Is that not right? (laughs) More so than girls. Absolutely. No doubt about it. It's a fact. But you know what? Recent studies have shown... That investment houses where the investment decisions are made by women perform better than investment decisions made by men. Why is that? Because men are emotional. Isn't that crazy? So, and, and though we kind of think of it that it's this conservative thing that says that about that, uh, about women and, and about men, it's not that at all. This is the fact. The fact of the matter is the, that, that, that men make rash vows all the time. In fact, the worst vow made in the Old Testament is made by a man. Jephthah. I'll let you look that up in the book of Judges. It's horrible. Horrible. Terrible. So, so as we think about this, you have to set that aside right off the bat, if you can. Now, I know some of you are so on hair trigger to be offended by things like this that maybe you can't. So this is going to be hard. But I'm here to tell you, this is not anti-woman. The other thing to note about this is that one of the things that runs through this section of verses 3 through 16 is this. Is that there's protection in this against rash vows. That, that comes out two or three times in here to be like, let's be careful here. Let's not, let's not make any rash vows so that, so that no one, uh, ends up having to do something that, um, uh, that, that in the end would, would be very, very unwise. Now, let me, let me just say here that one of the things that I think is great about this, this text that it, it roots this in, in marriage and family is because that's the place where we learn the most about how vows and commitments work. Now, when when our when our kids were younger, you know, one of the things that we uh, took very seriously was their commitments. And so, you know, here we are. We're at summer, and 
you're probably just on the front end of this, but we made our kids swim on the swim team. I know, stupid choice. I know, you know, if you only have one day to live, you hope it's at a swim meet because they last forever. (laughs) Right? I know. I know how all that works. Marty would say to the kids when they would complain, it's the only sport that can save your life. You know, like that's going to end the argument, right? (laughs) But we would say to our kids, listen, you made a commitment to your team. We're going. Now, trust me, I've spent a lot of time on 115 degree pool decks in the summer. It's awesome. For the 20 seconds, you're screaming at your kid to get down the 25 meters of that pool until you watch, wait another two hours until they do it again. Sounds like a dumb commitment. It is a dumb commitment. But if you make it, you keep it. If you make it, you keep it. So important for them to know that. So important, right? So let's let's unpack a little bit about what what's going on here in, in these these verses three three through sixteen with this. So one principle is if a woman made a vow or an oath who was a minor still residing in her father's house, it was not binding unless her father ratified it, right? And that seems like a very wise thing for us. That 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 would be that would be true for uh, for any of us, right? Uh, because the father loves his minor child and he might decide, you know what, that, that is, that is to your hurt. That is a dumb thing. Or it might be, you know what, you made this vow and it's a dumb thing, but the blessing of keeping the vow might, might just be worth it that you might just need to do this, right? Secondly, if a woman made a vow or oath while she was still single and then was subsequently married, her new husband could veto the vow, right? And then thirdly, if a married woman made a vow or an oath, her vow was subject to review by her husband. Now, now, why treat women like this, especially when men may be even more prone to make rash vows? Well, the thing that you have to understand about this is, is that God's law was given not just to regulate behavior or to organize the way the culture worked. God used the law to illustrate something even bigger and more profound and more important than how these vows are kept or maintained. <clears throat> God's law served the purpose of illustrating the relationship between the Lord and his people, who are also known as his adulterous wife, Israel, right? So, so here's the thing that you have to see in this. When you read this text, one of the things that happens in here a bunch is that, that what God is doing uh, in, in verses 3 through 16 is regulating rash vows, regulating bad vows, regulating things that people have bind themselves to do and that they shouldn't do, right? And so as a result of that, the covenant head in the household had an opportunity to say, you know what, I don't think we're going to do that. Now, God is teaching us here that our covenant head, the Lord, countermands our rash vows a lot. Thankfully, you see, when you read in this text where it talks, it mentions this a couple of times in her youth. This is identical language that is written uh, in the prophets, like in Hosea 2.15. 
And there I will give her her vineyards. Her is Israel and make the valley of Achor. The valley of Achor is where they uh, stoned Achan and his family for breaking covenant by stealing from Jericho, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Or Ezekiel 23, 8 and 19, she did not give up her whoring that she had begun in Egypt, for in her youth men had lain with her and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. Yet she increased her whoring, remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of Egypt. This was really uncomfortable language, isn't it? Right? I mean, you're like, whoa, this is, I, I didn't come to church on Father's Day to hear that word. Whichever one of those that you particularly don't like, right? Because there's a bunch that you might not like there. What if God had allowed Israel to break her vows with him and to keep her vows with Baal? What if God said, you know... I'm not, as your covenant loving head, I'm not going to intervene. You just, you, you just go and do that. Praise God that he doesn't do that to us, right? That, that he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't allow that to happen. He's saying here that at you and your youth and in your, your, uh, inability to remain, uh, uh, steadfast, your ability to remain uh, faithful, your ability to keep your vows and your promises, those things, those things, you know, uh, God's not going to allow you to align yourself and to make a vow and to, to uh, 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 commit yourself and promise yourself to something that in the end will destroy you. And so he teaches us that he will counteract that and he will counterman that and he will overcome that on our behalf, right? The hymn writer says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Listen, listen to this. Truer words have never been written by any uninspired writer. That describes us. That describes us. And it describes us in such a profound way. That's why God says to us, In verses 1 and 2, if you make a vow, you must keep it. Next slide. This statement's pretty unequivocal. So why is God so coldly... Uncompromising in this. And this is where it gets really nerve-wracking for me. Um, But I want you to kind of think with me for a second in a way you probably have never thought about vows before. In... Our understanding of the gospel and in our approach to the truth of what Jesus Christ has done, the cornerstone of what we believe is the forgiveness of sins, right? We say in the creed, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, for most of us, the orientation of saying we believe in the forgiveness of sins is towards the past, right? Now, there are a few of you who may be thinking you need forgiveness for what you're about to do. You're in a whole different category, (laughs) okay? But for those of us, for most of the time, when we think about the forgiveness of sins, we're thinking about the time we lost our temper, the time we did something bad, that that time we we uh, gave in to immorality, or that what whatever it may be, something that's oriented towards the past that we need to be forgiven for, right? And so we believe that and we proclaim that, and that is the the wonder and the beauty of the gospel, and that is one of the strands with which God binds us. To himself. But vow keeping and promise keeping in God's economy is the way he deals with us into an unpredictable future. If forgiveness is oriented towards the past, then our promises are oriented towards the future. And listen, sophisticated 2018 person, you cannot predict the future. I, um, one of, one of the things as I've gotten older and as I do weddings, I am so overcome almost every time by two things at weddings. One is when I see that bride come in the, in the church with her dad, I think of, I think of the second coming. So romantic, I know, but I think, I think of the second coming and I think this is so awesome. But the other thing I think about is these two people, making these promises, and they don't have a clue about the future. Not a clue. Now, they have a little data about, you know, I like this person, they're cute, I'm attracted to them, they're attracted to me, and I think their prospects are pretty good, right? I know that doesn't sound super exciting, but that's, that's all we got. And so we, we bind ourselves and our destiny to another person before God and these witnesses by taking these vows. Several years ago, I did a wedding. And um, um, as we were, we'd gone through the rehearsal, the rehearsal had gone great. And by the way, none of you that I've married, this is about you. Okay, so everybody relax. All your weddings were the best weddings ever. Whichever one you are. So um, we came to the wedding day. We're doing the vows. Do you take this woman to, uh, to be your wife for richer, for poorer? And he said, for richer or richer. And I said, for richer or poorer. And he said, for richer or richer. Now, if you look in the dictionary under the word awkward, <laughs> this, this is where it is right here. <laughs> and to my shame, I didn't stop right there and say, I'm not going to do this. About six months later, she was in my office. 
he'd left, and his parting words to her were, you just don't do it for me anymore. Now, I know I said that the future is unpredictable, but I think I could have predicted that. That she wasn't going to do it for him anymore. The one thing that we can be certain about in the future is the faithfulness of God because he is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. Now, here's the thing. And, and this is, in many ways, my conscience is, well, I'll just tell you, this is the hardest thing for me to say to you today. It's this. Jesus fulfills all our promise breaking. And he keeps all the promises that we break. I hesitate to say that. It's true. It is absolutely true. And it is our hope. It has to be our hope. Because we are so prone to wonder and to break our promises. That is true. But we cannot, God forbid, that that be a license to say, I made a vow, I'm going to break it. Because God, Jesus, makes up for me breaking my vows. And so this gets us back to why in the world, in a world of grace, in a world of love, and in a world of mercy, would the Lord say, this is my commandment. When you make a vow, you must keep it. Well, the reason for that is, That's who God is. And when we faithfully, as we are able, keep the promises and the vows that we've made, we reflect his character. Uh, Father's Day, my dad died uh, back in February. And I've been thinking this morning about uh, a conversation I had with my mom a few years before uh, um, before they got sick and died. And um, my mom, I would get up early in the morning when we would go see them and we would sit at the table and we would drink coffee and we would talk. And this was the one time where I was away from my dad, away from the kids, away from everybody else, where we could actually talk about something other than the typical stuff we talked about. And so I asked her, you know, my, my mom and dad had a, a, an unbroken chain of 77 Valentines between them. Married for 66 years. And so I said to her, like, one day, I'm like, Mom, you know, what attracted you to Dad? What What is it about Daddy that, you know... Because they have a very warm, very affectionate relationship. And they were, they were hardly ever apart, except for the time when Dad was in uh, basic training uh, in the Army. They were together all the time. All the time. 
And so I expected her to say, well, you know, your father's receding hairline is so cute or, you know, whatever, whatever she's going to say about him. This is what she said. Well, uh, your dad's a good provider. He works hard. He never hit us. And he was a good dad. And he's trustworthy. So I'm like, and? <laughs> He's smoking hot, right? <laughs> or, or something, right? Or, are you going to say something else? And she's like, that's, and then she just picked her coffee up and started drinking it. And that was that. Right? We're here today. Because as we've sung, our God is steadfast. And that's our only hope, is his steadfastness. And we bear witness to that steadfastness, one way or another. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to 